Good morning. Uh, would you all please stand again for the reading of God's Word? We are continuing in the book of First Peter. Uh, we are in chapter 2, going through this morning, verses 18 to 21. And it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do, do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and how um, purifying it is and how humbling it is, Lord. And, and I pray that you would humble us this morning, that you would help us to overcome any um, cultural barriers that we might uh, have to overcome in order to receive the truth that is in this text, Lord. And I pray that you help us to um, understand and truly um, receive in our hearts your instruction about what it means to be a faithful and good uh, servant. And I pray that we would all desire to take on your character because you are the ultimate servant. And no matter how much we have to humble ourselves to represent you well as servants, as employee, employers or employees, no one has ever humbled themselves as much as you humbled yourself in coming down to earth to serve sinful humans, Lord. So again, bless us this morning. I pray that your word would go out with power. In Christ's name, amen. Um, um, as Leo mentioned, my name is Raymond. I am a small group, a community group co-leader. I have the honor of co-leading with David Shashikin and Anna Shashikin. And uh, yeah, we are entering a, a portion of First Peter that talks quite a bit about submission in various contexts, a topic that's always fun for all of us, or the opposite, always controversial no matter what the context is. Um, in the past, when I've had the opportunity to address uh, Shore Break Church, um, I have taken sort of a big picture approach to the text that I've uh, uh, given to you, uh, more dealing with the implicit themes of the text that I was able to address. But this passage um, requires me to deal much more directly with what's being written here uh, because it, prevent, it sorry, presents such an ideological obstacle to us as Westerners, as Americans. And that's because most of us are aware that this word servant in verse 18 is referring to slavery. Now, if you um, attend church in most congregations around the world and listen to most preachers, this topic of slavery would almost never come up. And that's because most preachers feel compelled to preach on subjects that they feel are most relevant to their congregations. And for most of us, obviously in the 21st century, Western world, slavery is not all that relevant. Um, 
But at Shorebreak Church, we believe in preaching the Bible expositorily and teaching the Bible expositorily. And so it's because of that conviction, because of the fact that we believe that the Word of God is historically accurate, meaning everything in, in the Word is trustworthy. It's authoritative, meaning every human um, will be judged one day based on whether they heeded the warnings and the commands in this book. And it's also sufficient, meaning that everything we read in this book will help us to grow in our character in Christ and help us to grow in our joy and our peace in this life. Uh, that conviction uh, leads us to preach the Bible sentence by sentence, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, and book by book. And so when you have that approach to preaching, you are going to come to this topic again and again, because even though it's not that much relevant to us explicitly, uh, it, is, it was very relevant in the first century Roman Empire, Roman-dominated world that the apostolic writers were addressing in their epistles. Um, consider the fact that not only here does 1 Peter chapter 2 address the topic of slavery, but so does Titus chapter 2, Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and of course uh, the letter of Paul to Philemon uh, was a letter to a slave master regarding his runaway slave. And um, so they were obligated to address this topic of slavery just like they were obligated to address the relationship between husbands and wives and children and parents and, uh, and uh, governments and citizens because it was such uh, a big factor in their lives. Uh, historians are not exactly sure on an approximate number, like what percentage of the Roman Empire was comprised of the slave population. But just as a comparison, in 1860 in the United States, at the dawn of the US Civil War, about 12.5% of the population was slaves from Africa. And historians are sure that at least 25% of the population in the Roman Empire was slaves. And in fact, uh, the population of slaves was so large that the government once considered having people to wear special clothing so that uh, slaves could be distinguished from freedmen. But they decided against that idea because they realized that if the slaves would look around and know who the other slaves were, and they would see how large their numbers were, that they might want to band together and overthrow the government or maybe just overthrow their, their masters. But um, as you consider this issue of slavery and the, the way the Bible addressed it, addresses it, the thing that you might be surprised by and the thing that you might be shocked or offended by is the fact that the Bible does not categorically condemn slavery. And in, according to the Bible, or in the Bible, uh, slavery is nothing more than another economic relationship, just like buyers and sellers or borrowers and lenders, or investors and entrepreneurs, or employers and employees. Um, but we should not conclude from that that just because the Bible doesn't categorically condemn slavery, that the Bible automatically approves all forms of slavery and every instance of slavery. And I am um, certain that the Bible would have roundly condemned the form of slavery, or the Bible 
writers would have roundly condemned the form of slavery, for example, that was practiced in the United States prior to the 21st century. Um, now, on the topic of slavery, there was actually an interesting historical finding recently. Uh, Dr. Hannah Durkin of the uh, Newcastle University in the United Kingdom, she was able to pinpoint exactly who the last surviving U.S. slave was. Uh, and when I say last surviving slave, I'm not talking about those who were born into slavery because their parents were slaves. I'm talking about uh, slaves who were kidnapped and brought over to the United States in boats. Um, and so Dr. Durkin was able to determine through research that the last surviving slave who was kidnapped was a young lady named Ridoshi, and she was brought over in 1860 from the West African nation of Benin, uh, along with 116 others. And she died in 1937 uh, as the last surviving kidnapped slave. And that was just a little more than 80 years ago. There might be folks in this church who were 80 years or close to it. Um, and so the question is, uh, how do I know the Bible condemns this form of slavery? Well, we have some, some clues uh, from, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you can turn there if you'd like, but, or if you're taking notes, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11, Paul addresses this topic of slavery, or this, this kind of slavery that involves kidnapping, and he lumps it into the same category as other wicked sins um, that we most, more often address in the modern church. And keep in mind as I read this that he's talking about people who were walking unapologetically and unrepentantly in these sins. He's not talking about people who once uh, were involved in these sins and repented or even people who might currently struggle with these issues, but he's talking about people who are unapologetically practicing these things. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11, Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, the word enslavers is, comes from the Greek word um, andropostes, andropostes, and it means a slave dealer or kidnapper or of one who unjustly reduces free men to slavery. And uh, even in, within any institution of slavery, whether that institution would be generally accepted by God or not, uh, whenever anyone is in the condition of slavery, God commands that the master would treat the slave with mercy, with kindness, with fairness, and treat them humanely. Um, and that was not the case in the slavery that took place in the United States. Um, Paul addresses, again, the way, masters, the way slaves and masters ought to interact with each other in Ephesians chapter 6. And he tells slaves in verse 7 of that chapter um, to render, quote, service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, unquote. 
But then in verse 9, he goes on to say, quote, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So just as slaves must um, have a good will as to the Lord towards their masters, masters were, are meant to have a good will as to the Lord towards their slaves. And with these kind of admonitions and others that I could point out, um, it's no wonder to me that those with a Christian worldview were at the forefront of the movement to end slavery in the U.S. and in uh, Europe in the uh, 19th century. For example, Abraham Lincoln, uh, most people, most historians believe that he wasn't actually a Christian, but his moral and ethical um, understanding was heavily shaped and formed by his Reformed Baptist upbringing. And uh, Lincoln was re-elected as president, and during his, he was the 16th president of the United States, of course, and during his second inaugural address in 1865, he said this about the Civil War, uh, which, of course, ultimately led to the abolition of slavery in the United States. Uh, Lincoln said, quote, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, as it was said 4,000 years ago, still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And William Wilberforce was an English parliamentarian um, who was a major part of the abolitionist movement in uh, Great Britain, or the British Empire, uh, in the 1820s. And he said this regarding his involvement in that movement. If it please God to honor me so far, May I be the instrument of stopping such a course of wickedness and cruelty as has never disgraced a Christian country before. But again, um, having said all of that, as we read through this passage in 1 Peter and we come to the word servant or slave, we shouldn't necessarily have in our mind the form of slavery that was practiced in much of the Western world in the, uh, the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, many slaves in the Roman Empire were routinely set free, and that provided a powerful incentive for slaves to work hard and, and be faithful to their masters because they knew that they could engender goodwill from their masters. That could lead to their um, freedom. But also, um, slaves, um, slavery could actually be a stepping stone to citizenship, believe it or not, if uh, someone uh, became the slave of a of a Roman citizen. And also, uh, just to give you an idea how well many slaves had it during that time, uh, the first century in which the apostles uh, were addressing, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 35, quote, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Now, when we hear that as Americans, we might think, well, that, isn't that a good thing that the slave doesn't remain in the house forever? But Jesus is pointing to the fact that in the first century, in the Roman world, many slaves were treated so well that they were practically regarded as family. And if you were um, 
in the household of a caring, loving master, it wouldn't necessarily be a pleasant thought to be put outside of the household. Um, and so being treated as a son uh, was the ideal and was even uh, common for many slaves. Um, there are probably four primary forms of slavery in the first century in the Roman world. Uh, there were those who, of course, were born into slavery because their parents were slaves. There were those who were prisoners of war, so people were often put to work instead of, you know, just put in isolation, um, as many prisoners of war are. There were those who went into bondage because of debts and in order to pay debts, and they just remained in that condition of slavery uh, because uh, or until they were able to work off their debts. And, of course, there were those who sold themselves into slavery. Um, in fact, if you were a slave to a wealth, presumably wealthy person, your lifestyle, your comfort, your security that you enjoyed was probably better than a working class or a middle class person who was free. Um, now, as we think of this, as we read through the rest of this passage, I want us to have this last form of slavery mostly in mind because it's the kind that is the most um, applicable to our modern day employment and the way we can appropriate these uh, instructions that Peter's given into our own lives. So we just got finished covering uh, a very uh, controversial word, slave, and the next one is a little bit less controversial, but still controversial or difficult for us to swallow sometimes. Uh, Peter says, be subject to your masters. Uh, that phrase, um, be subject, is from one Greek word, Upatasso, which means to subordinate, to yield to one's admonition or advice or to obey. And, and just in so many contexts uh, in life, uh, it's hard for us to submit. And it's often hard to submit in a workplace situation. Um, and there are three reasons that came to my mind as I was preparing this message why people have a hard time submitting and doing all that is required of them in their work site and what, which their boss gives them to do. For one thing, some people feel unfulfilled in their jobs. They feel like their work is banal, meaningless. Um, they just don't see why they're being told to do certain things. And some people have the advantage of being on salary, and so they're able to goof off and uh, not put in an honest day's work, and their pay doesn't change depending on how hard they work. And unfortunately, some people will work hard and uh, do what they're supposed to do when the boss is around, but then when the boss is out of, out of sight, uh, they go back to reading their novels or goofing off on Facebook or texting or whatever they would prefer to do rather than the work they've been given. Well, the Apostle Paul has something to say about that. He says that servants should serve in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, servants should serve, quote, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Um, another thing we need to understand, and when we, if we're tempted to goof off at work or we're not motivated to do the things we've been asked to do, is that when you don't do what you're asked to do of your, by your employer or your boss and you're getting a paycheck, to do a certain thing that you're not doing, that's actually a form of theft. And if you're praying that the Lord would provide you with work that you find more meaningful, um, 
you would be um, foolish to think that he would bless you in such a way when you're not being faithful in the work uh, he's put in front of you. And so we should be uh, diligent in the work that we do, regardless of whether we personally find it meaningful or not. This is the work that God's blessed us with, the means of which God has provided for us to take care of our families, and we need to honor those employers and those um, overseers of us in the work that they give us to do. Um, another reason that some people don't uh, necessarily give their best effort or submit at work is because they feel like they're not getting paid as much as they deserve to be paid. And so some people even work um, up to the standard that's the, the basic minimum requirement, but they don't go above and beyond in doing everything they're capable of doing on their work site. Uh, Paul has something to say about that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. He says, quote, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I believe as Christians we should not on our job site only do basically what's required, but we should do everything we are capable of doing within that 40 hours. And if I am the only Christian at my workplace, I believe that I should be the hardest working person at that workplace, and I, I should glorify God in that regard. Uh, another reason people struggle to submit is because they feel as though their expertise isn't respected. The employer is telling them to do something uh, when they know better, or they believe they know better than the employer uh, what to do, and they aren't even asked for their opinion or advice on how to deal with a certain matter. Um, I believe we see somewhat of an example of this in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus uh, of course, Peter had been fishing all night. He caught nothing, and uh, nighttime was the best time to go fishing because the fish were close to the surface at that time. And in the morning, fishermen uh, in that region, uh, they washed their nets, they washed their boats, they repaired their nets, and so forth, and got ready for the next day's work. But Jesus tells Peter in the middle of the day to put his net on the other side of the boat for, the, for a catch, and Peter says, well, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything, but hey, since you say do it, I'll do it. And they caught the biggest catch they've ever seen. Um, we need to understand with that example in mind that even though our boss isn't Jesus, um, not directly, um, sometimes the boss knows things that we don't know. Even though we do have expertise, we do have experience in a certain area, Sometimes the boss has a big picture in mind that we don't have, and when they tell us to do something, they might not necessarily have time to explain everything, but we need to uh, just carry out their uh, commands faithfully and just be loyal in that way. Um, and there are other times when they really still don't, they don't have the big picture. They, there are times when you are right and they are wrong. Uh, we see this in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. David commands his military commander to number his army. And Joab, the commander, knew that this was a foolish act. It was an act of pride. And Joab, as the commander, knew the real reason that the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah were so powerful and so unstoppable was because God's hand was on that kingdom. It didn't have anything to do with the numbers in the military. And he objected to David telling him, uh, count the fighting men. 
but David insisted that he do it, and he went ahead and did it, and uh, God uh, struck Israel, God punished Israel for David's sin of having the mighty men uh, counted. We talked about this in a, a bit in community group, uh, but sometimes if you're in a position of leadership and uh, you give a certain command or a certain directive and the person you're telling to carry out the work argues with you, but then you insist that they do the thing you're telling them to do. If that person uh, does what you tell them to do in a hardworking, loyal, um, diligent way, and then they prove to be right, that you should, should not have done that thing the way you did it, it's humbling to you, and you are more likely to take that person's advice on the next occasion. But if they rebel, if they... Um, do even do the thing you're telling them to do grudgingly, oftentimes that even if uh, they prove to be correct, that doesn't necessarily bring the kind of um, respect for that worker and the willingness to listen to that worker that uh, the worker would hope would happen. So even when we feel like we're in a position of expertise, we still need to honor our employer uh, by doing carrying out the work he tells us to do that doesn't mean we can't voice our disagreement, but we still ultimately, if that employer insists, have to carry out what he's or she is telling us to do. Um, then Peter tells us not only do we uh, be subject to our masters or employers in this case, uh, but we need to do so with all respect. Uh, and the Greek word uh, is for respect or with all respect is phobos, and that's where we get the English word phobia, actually. And most times, instead of this word being translated with all respect, it would be translated fear or um, even terror. And I almost look at it this way. If Jesus were, this wouldn't happen because I, this place looks amazing, but if Jesus were to stand before us, all of a sudden appear before us this morning and say, this place looks terrible, it's a disaster, I want all of you to clear out all the chairs and all the tables, get down on your hands and knees and scrub the floor, and then move all the chairs and tables back and start the service from the beginning. Uh, we probably wouldn't argue with Jesus, because even though we know that Jesus is loving, kind, caring, merciful, he's also the all-powerful God of the universe who has the authority to send men to heaven or to hell. And so if he were to uh, tell us to do that and to clean the floor, we would not put uh, him to the test by saying, no, no, Lord, we're not going to do that. It looks fine. And even if we are not terrified or respectful of our employers in the way we would be respectful of Jesus, we should act as though we are. Some of us know that we have employers who are pushovers. They make idle threats and give idle commands, and everyone knows that if they cut corners or don't do exactly what the boss is telling them to do, that that boss uh, won't do anything about it. But if, again, I would use the example that if I'm the only Christian or if you're the only Christian in your workplace, you should set the example of behaving with a level of respect and regard for your boss as though you were terrified of him, even if you're not. And Peter goes on to say that we should behave this way. We should submit to our employers, our masters, with all respect. But we should do so 
not only for the good and for the gentle, uh, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. And this takes us to another reason why many of us have a hard time submitting on the, in the workplace, is that we do have harsh or unjust employers um, or bosses. And so Peter is not um, disregarding that reality. He's not ignoring that reality. But when we um, or find ourselves in that situation, and if for, for some reason we have to remain in that situation for a season, uh, we should remind ourselves that Jesus is with us. Jesus can give us peace in the midst of that situation, and he is honored by our faithful service in the midst of that situation because Jesus rendered faithful service in the midst of trying circumstances. And uh, James gives us further reason to hope in the midst of um, potentially oppressive employment situation. In James chapter 5, of course, James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, he, in chapter 5, he had just actually gotten finished excoriating abusive employers for their mistreatment of workers and telling them that they will be judged by God. But then he follows that um, warning to the employers by saying to the laborers in verse 7 of chapter 5, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establishing your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And when I read that passage, not only does it give me a cause for endurance, but it also, if I were in the situation of having an oppressive or abusive boss, it would put me in the position of praying for that person. Because when James says the coming of the Lord is at hand, you know, that is the coming judgment, the coming uh, condemnation for those who are unrighteous. And I would not want my worst enemy to suffer uh, eternal torment and punishment in hell, even if that person was just um, oppressing me, abusing me. I would definitely pray for that person's salvation, for that person's repentance not only for my sake, so that I can have a more pleasant working experience, but also ultimately, eternally, for the sake of my boss. Um, Peter goes on to say, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? Um, I have a friend who once said, it's okay to rebel as long as you're willing to deal with the consequences for it. And I just thought, that is so unbiblical and ungodly. You know, I don't know what to say about that. He was basically saying, it's okay to rebel as long as you don't rebel against the consequences for your rebellion. And in the Bible, uh, according to the teachings of Scripture, rebellion, uh, in most cases, is not an option. Even if you feel like you're being underpaid, overworked, or whatever the case is, you, again, submit, you are faithful, you are loyal for as long as you are in that workplace situation. Um, Peter says, goes on to say, but if when you do good, you suffer for it and you endure it, uh, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There is one, you could think of it as one or two scenarios where not only is rebellion allowed, but it's required. 
you are always allowed to rebel when someone tells you to do something that God commands, or tells you not to do something that God commands and tells you to do something that God forbids. So, for example, sometimes in a workplace, you might be in a situation where your boss is telling you to falsify a profit report to make profits look better than they actually are, and you refuse to do it because of your integrity as a Christian. Or you might be invited to go on a workplace retreat over a weekend, and you know that during that retreat, people are going to be engaged in all sorts of ungodly, unrighteous behavior, and you refuse to be a part of it. And you are, maybe you're not um, directly punished for it, but you recognize at some point that you were passed over for um, a promotion, or you were passed over for a raise because you refused to be one of the boys and join in with that sinful uh, activity. Uh, you should know that God honors that kind of rebellion on the workplace. Uh, any kind of rebellion that glorifies God directly. We see this in uh, the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were um, in, working in the government of King Nebuchadnezzar during the Babylonian ca captivity. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was commanding people when they were prompted that they should bow down and worship this idol. And these young men said, we are not going to do that. King, you know, they were respectful in the way they said it. They were, were honoring to him and the way they refused to do it. But they said, we are not going to do it under any terms. And, of course, they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and God delivered them from that situation. And then the king honored them and honored their God for their rebellion. Um, and he said, no one had better speak a word against the God of these young men. Now, I can't guarantee you, I can't promise you that you will receive that kind of vindication in this life if you have to rebel in that way in your employment situation. But again, you will, I believe God will give us a sense, even a tangible sense, perhaps, of his pleasure with us, of the fact that he is proud of us. And when you stand before him, um, when, you, when you rise from the dead, and you meet Jesus face to face, he will commend you for honoring him, even when it meant risking your employment status or your uh, career advancement in the workplace. Um, when it comes to this kind of suffering, uh, Peter says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When we suffer, when we have to rebel, when we have no choice but to rebel in the workplace, uh, we have to understand that if God has sovereignly placed us in that place and he has confronted us with a situation where we have to um, deny, we have to say no to the uh, instruction of our employer, we have to recognize that we are called to that kind of rebellion and only to that kind of rebellion, um, to stand up for righteousness' sake. Um, sometimes we can't necessarily leave abusive or oppressive workplace situations because um, those jobs are actually providing for us and providing for our families. And there is no better opportunity out there. And we know that the only thing we can do is um, continue to stand up as Christian men and women 
and honor God and live out our lives and continue to endure that. Um, when that is the case, um, the writer of Hebrews um, kind of gives us a mindset that we can use to um, make it through those times. And he says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Um, again, we have to endure with dignity. We have to endure with honor. We have to endure in a respectful way towards our employers. And God honors that and understand the fact that we are not necessarily obligated to stay in an oppressive work situation. There's nothing wrong with putting in your two weeks' notice and leaving if it's so bad you can't take it anymore. And if God is providing an opportunity elsewhere, you are not required to stay in that situation. Um, God does not necessarily require you to stay in that situation. But the main point I want us to take away is, again, as long as we're in that situation, we have to be the most loyal employers. In fact, whenever we do end up leaving a situation like that, I think that we should have, we should have been such good workers that that boss will be kicking himself, knowing that when he lost one of us, he lost the most loyal, hardworking, honest, decent worker that he ever had and that he will never be able to replace. And my opinion is, if I am not willing to behave with that level of integrity on my job site, it would actually be better if my coworkers and my boss did not know that I was a Christian. Well, I hate to end on that kind of somber note, but let's pray. Lord, I just thank you again that your, your word is so humbling, that it's so convicting, and that it's so clear that we don't have to guess or wonder how we ought to behave in these circumstances, but that you give us clear direction and insight how to bear up under these circumstances and how to honor you in these circumstances. And Lord, I do pray for those who are in oppressive employment situations. I pray that you give them the will, give them the strength to honor you in those circumstances. Um, Lord, I pray that they would not be caught up in pride, knowing that they, even though it is true in your mind that they deserve to be treated better. Maybe they have been passed over for raises, promotions, Lord, but you were unfairly treated. There was no person in history who deserved to be treated better than you um, when you walked the earth, and yet you were treated worse in comparison to how you deserve to be treated than anyone in history, Lord. So I pray that we would be mindful of that, and we would have that resolve to honor you and watch you work in our lives, watch you sanctify us through that, and even potentially promote us through that um, to positions of leadership or higher um, pay. But know that regardless of whether that happens or not, you are honored, you are glorified, and potentially people could come to a saving knowledge of you through our graceful um, behavior in that circumstance. I pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.